Well, good morning. We're spread out. We're at home. I want to say good morning to you if you're tuned in with us from home. Uh, we're spread out around an auditorium. I see some faces back with us. Um, so we are in this strange time of COVID. How many of you guys like church during COVID? How many of you guys like school during COVID? How many like uh, work during COVID? I mean, good gracious. Are you ready for this to be over? Yeah, 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 yeah. This has been a difficult time. Thanksgiving for some was lonely and challenging. COVID has been just such a funny time. Well, we're in this uh, finishing up the book of Malachi today. And what's really interesting is Malachi um, is not in a time of COVID, but he is saying, hey, 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 we're in this big mess. Uh, things have been really difficult, and I want to tell you about some good stuff that's coming. So that's kind of the perspective that we're going to go into this today, okay? And I realize we're spread out and around. We have two services now. We got some people at home. So um, they're making me stand all the way up here on this platform. I'm sorry if I had my choice, I'd come down there. But they're making me stand here so I can be on, uh, on our little camera. But um, So open your Bible. We're in Malachi 4. I'm going to start uh, reading in 3, uh, verse 16, and then we're going to go through chapter 4. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew, beginning of the New Testament, and go to the left a couple pages. Yeah? Um, I love a paper Bible. This is a disclaimer, but I love a paper Bible. There's nothing wrong with a phone Bible, okay? But a paper Bible, see all my notes? You can write in, you can put dates, the Holy Spirit speaks a little something, you can circle it. That's old school. I am a millennial, but hey, I recommend a paper Bible. Uh, there's just something powerful about it. Because sometimes you're in the middle of a message, uh, or you're sitting listening to someone who's teaching, or maybe you're in a Bible study, or maybe you're even by yourself reading, but suddenly the Holy Spirit of God will speak a little something to you. And you need to be able to make a note and go, put a date by it and go, God said where there was a nudge from the Lord. And that is, uh, for me, um, that makes it just very uh, personal. And I've got news for you. Christianity, um, this thing that we do, is not something that we just do on Sundays for an hour or two. It's actually a relationship where we're supposed to be living, vibrant, breathing, interacting with this God, creator God, and then living um, Him out loud as we go out. Yeah? Paper Bibles. Come on. That was a disclaimer. All right. Uh, we are in um, Malachi, I guess Malachi 3.16, but w one more thing before I say that. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, we're, we're familiar with kind of the historical books, but after the historical books, there's some minor prophets. There's four minor prophets, and then you get in, or excuse me, major prophets, and then there's actually 12 minor prophets. And I'd be willing to almost bet that almost nobody in the room could rattle off all 12 minor prophets. Ruth probably could and Clive probably could. But other than the two of them, I'm not sure that anybody could rattle off all 12. And in classic sort of American, uh, when we don't understand something, what do we do? Google it. Okay, that's good. What else do we do? Somebody said it. Ignore it. We're, we're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to pretend it doesn't exist. And the minor prophets um, are actually challenging to sort of grapple with and read through. And some of today's text is actually really challenging. We're going to kind of move through it. But, but here's what I want you to understand about the minor prophets. Uh, the minor prophets are all sort of a... Um, to use like a theological word, like messianic prototypes. So in other words, they are foretelling both with their words um, and with their lives that Jesus is coming. And, and so it's like this, um, they are literally, everything about who they are is this little taste of this coming Jesus. So they are in a small way sort of symbolic um, and, and sort of uh, telling what is 
going to come. So you have to, as you, as you look at the, all of the minor prophets, of which Malachi is one, you have to sort of understand um, that, that Malachi um, is, is acting as a mediator uh, sort of between God and between humans. So I like to um, think of that uh, artwork on the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo did. You know, that sort of the, the, the meeting fingers between God and man. And that's kind of the idea of the minor prophets, is they're literally, um, they're, they're attempting to grasp on to God. God and then grasped onto man and sort of bring the two together. And it's a picture of what Christ Jesus would ultimately do as he would bring everything together um, in, in connecting uh, God with humanity. Does that make sense? So, so as we dig into these minor prophets, you literally have to understand them and understand this context um, in that this is this mediation that is sort of happening, and that's what Malachi is trying to do. Now, the, the other thing that's fascinating here um, is this is literally the last, like this is the bookend of the Old Testament. This is it. This is it. This is, so what Malachi tries to do here in these last few verses is he's going to, um, presuming he's a guy, his name means messenger, so he actually is, could just be a message, but most people think he was actually a prophet named Malachi. Um, but, but what he's actually trying to do, um, and as God speaks through him, is get his hands kind of around the Old Testament, and then he gets his hands around sort of the coming Jesus, the coming New Testament, and he brings it all together sort of brilliantly. But it's very, it's a little bit complex, and there's parts of it that are scary. We're actually going to talk about a couple things that are like, so let's dig in. Uh, Malachi 3, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, listen to this, and the Lord, what did he do? Listened. Let's do that again. And the Lord listened and he heard. The Lord listened and he heard. What a father. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of heaven's armies, they will be my treasured possession. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now, just a little note here. As we look through the lens of Jesus um, at even the Old Testament, you have to almost think of when it says righteous and the wicked, it's those who are in Jesus and those who aren't in Jesus. There's this sort of distinction that begins to be made between those who serve God and between those who do not. Chapter 4, verse 1, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and you will frolic like well-fed calves, and you will trample on the wicked, and there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of hosts. And then verse 4, this is it. He's sort of going back to the future here. So uh, Malachi is going to look back. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb or Sinai for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children 
to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Lord Jesus, would you breathe life into these words? Father, would you allow us to drink deeply of your word? Would you change us? Would you form us? Would you conform us? Would you shape us, Lord? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you change us? Would you fill us? Would you speak to us, O Lord? In your name we pray. Amen. So the great challenge now, as we've read a few paragraphs, is to go, okay, how does this then impact sort of um, our lives, and then how does it impact sort of the capital C church, the larger church that's happening today, Um, and and then how do we move sort of from this point to what's next, I think is the big question that's kind of at hand for us. So um, one of the things that I think is fascinating here is verse 16 of chapter 3 is the first time where God positively uh, references um, a group who've been faithful to him in this whole book of Malachi. It's always been a, a group that's been negative. It's been a group of dissenters. Almost, I, I referenced them as kind of like arrogant teenagers last week. This group always talks back to God. You know, God will speak, and then the, the group sort of goes, well, what do you mean by that? And they always keep speaking back, talking back to God. And this is the first time where God talks about this sort of remnant um, who those who have been faithful to him. And if, if I could um, just make a couple of comments about this. Through every age, so in the darkest times, uh, when people are um, turning from Christ, when they're turning from God, when they're fleeing the church, there's always a remnant of people. That's just a Bible word that means that's a, it's, a, it's a group of people who have chosen to be faithful. And when everybody else is jumping ship, they're going, no, 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 I'm going to stand. It, it makes me think of Elijah in the Old Testament where he got to this point where he kind of threw up his hands and he went, God, I'm the only one. Like, there's no one else. I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. And God corrects him and goes, no, 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 there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so you, you have this idea that there's, there's this remnant. And I, I think what's fascinating to me in that first verse, of verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened, and he heard. And what you literally get is a picture. There's a couple translations that says those who feared the Lord met with one another. And you begin to actually get this kind of um, gritty idea of what an Old Testament version of kind of New Testament church might look like. They're gathering together, and, and they're talking with one another. Um, they're gathering with one another. They're, they're sort of conversing over who God is. Um, and, and then God literally writes a scroll of remembrance um, over those who feared him. So let me, let me take this out of con or, or pull back a little bit and give you an analogy that I was sort of thinking about. Over Thanksgiving, um, we had some family members over and we put a, a fire on our back porch. And at one point, we even put a fire down in our, we got this movable fire pit that, you know, whatever, sits like that. And uh, so I was out there by myself at one point, and I started the fire, and I was just kind of, I was mulling over my message and the sermon, and I had two logs in it, and there's two logs in the fire, and as the two logs were next to each other, the fire just kind of smoldered on. And I took my metal tongs, and I took the tongs, and I pulled one of the logs out, and I set them down on the ground, and what happened? What happened? Why did it go out? So I took, the fire went out, exactly right. So I took my tongs, put it back in. Two logs are back together. What happened to the log? It starts burning again. And then I walked over to my wood pile and I grabbed another log and I put that in there. And then what happened? Fire got bigger. I put a fourth log in and what happened? Fifth log in, sixth log in. All of a sudden, I've got this huge blaze going on in this little fire pit. And then I went back and I took my metal tongs and I took one and I set it in the grass again. And what happened? Now listen to me. Listen to me. I take 
uh, COVID very seriously. I'm wearing a mask. We have a disinfectant thing we're doing in this room in between gatherings. We're being as careful as we can. But if the enemy can get us separated, take the tongs, the log by itself, what happens? It goes out. You get those logs piled together when people gather with the Spirit of God. There's something supernatural that happens, and there's this uh, collective thing of Jesus in us, Christ in us, and the fire just blazes. It's like it just goes. And when you get out by yourself, when you get out alone, when you get out, you are going to literally go out. And so you, right at the beginning of this, you see that there's this remnant of people who are gathering with one another, talking with one another. And my favorite part of this is before we get into the judgment of the Lord and the day of the Lord that burns like a furnace and, and some of the scary sort of language in here, we see this tender, sensitive God who A, hears, listens, and responds. See a father who hears, a father who listens, and not only does he hear, and not only does he listen, but he actually responds. He changes his action. He changes the course that he's on uh, because he is listening to what's happening, what, what people, his people, are actually saying. So my first point this morning is this is a God who listens to, hears, and responds to those that fear him. Now, God is... Um, uh, you begin to see that God is a gentle God and a responsive God when we fear Him. And, and I think many of us actually um, sort of envision God as harsh uh, or distant or angry or uh, frustrated with us, and I think nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, many times people uh, would sort of um, land in, in one version or another of, of God. So here's what I mean. I had a dear friend, and they would always talk about getting up and spending time with um, Daddy God. And guess what? They're right. They're absolutely right. It's Abba. Remember Jesus in the garden? He literally said Abba, which means, and he's literally saying it was Aramaic, but it was recorded in Greek, but he's literally saying Papa God or Daddy God, and that is absolutely right. But what Malachi is actually trying to sort of get his hands around is as intimate and tender as that Abba or Papa or Daddy God, there's also this uh, larger picture that's at, at work and at stake here, and it is that there is a righteous, um, uh, holy God, and there's almost this ancient fear of God that we've, in many ways, in the, in the capital C church of today, I think we've lost. The, the risk is, if we downgrade into just making it about a service or a gathering or how something looks or how it comes across, is that you actually can lose the person that it's all about. It's the person of Jesus. It's the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we downshift um, and, 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 and sort of minimize Him, I think we actually lose the potency of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So, is it Papa God? Yeah, you better believe it. I actually say that some mornings. You believe that? I get up, I make my coffee early in the morning, the house is dark. I'll say good morning. Sometimes I go, good morning, Abba, Daddy. But the risk, if you dwell just there, is that you actually begin to lose this ancient, holy sort of fear of God and this awesome thing. So, you, you, and I, I think if we um, took that a step further, like the fear of God, there's this tension that is kind of hard to wrestle out. And I think to, to fully understand it, I'd have to throw out a couple passages to you. Proverbs 9, verses 10 says, um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, Luke 12, Jesus is actually talking a lot about fear. It's a fascinating progression. Read it in your own time. Make a note, maybe. But here's what he says. Uh, he literally says, don't fear those who can hurt your body. Don't be afraid of them. But then 
he switches and he actually says, um, fear God, this is, this is heavy, who can throw you into hell. Sounds like Malachi 4.1, surely the day is coming. But then he flips again and he says, don't fear God because you are worth more than many sparrows. And then he concludes the whole thing a few verses later with, don't be afraid because your father will give you the kingdom. So, so what I'm sort of introducing here, and I talked to you a little bit last week about how we can't just take one text um, and, and stand alone. No, no, no. You've got to take that text and you've got to put the text sort of in the context of the book and then the larger context of the whole of Scripture, right? So literally, he's, there's this, as we look at Genesis to Revelation, there's this um, sort of paradox that we don't need uh, to fear God's love um, if we fear his judgment. In other words, if we find refuge in Christ Jesus, then we don't need to spend a lot of time um, being afraid of God. I think that's probably a better word in our language than, than so fear is sort of this um, reverential awe or reverential respect, whereas being afraid is almost like what you might think of an abusive father. You know, I'm afraid of. But there's this sort of tension, and how do we uh, both be afraid or, or fear God, but not live in, uh, be afraid of Him. And, and it's, this, it's this thing that sort of unfolds throughout Scripture. And in order to understand it best, I actually went to the last verse of, this, of chapter 4 where he says, he'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And so I began to go, okay, I just mean to think of even our kids. And so the idea is, as a father relates to kids, um, what do I want my kids first to know about me? What do you think? That I'm what? Good, okay. What else? In charge. I'd put that down the list. What else? Some, so, that I love them. First thing I want my kids to know is I love them. Now, at some point, they've got to know I set boundaries. At some point, they've got to know, hey, if you cross this, there's going to be repercussions. And so, so you, you, I, I think that's probably the best way to understand a holy, heavenly Father is. And I love that this whole passage started with, uh, the Lord listened and heard. It's this tender-hearted Father that you actually begin to see before you see the God who brings judgment and discipline. I mean, it is this, it's a beautiful sort of um, understanding of how God relates to a lost, sinful, and broken humanity. So first point this morning, this is the God who listens to, hears, and responds to those that fear him. Second point is you begin to see a God who provides both um, negative motivation and positive motivation. We're already kind of grappling with this, but there's this, um, if, if you think about the parable of the sheep and goats, Matthew, I think that's 21, or the parable of the tenants, Matthew um, 23, you begin to see that God uses uh, both uh, sort of negative uh, or positive motivation and negative motivation. And, and we actually need both. So let's, let's take a step back and try to put this in current context. Um, how many of you drive approximately the speed limit? Approximately, give or take, seven over, 10 over if you're setting your cruise control. Okay, why, don't you dri- why do you drive near the speed limit? Why? You don't want a ticket. Okay, so that's some negative motivation, right? I mean, you know, the roads that are like 25 miles an hour, I'm always like, oh, come on, we got to get the show on the road. I've got somewhere to go, right? And, and, you know, it's like that there is a healthy um, negative motivation to keep you out of trouble, right? There's a lot of things in life, probably um, cutting a check to the IRS at the end of the year, right? 
There's some negative motivation. If you don't do that, they send you that letter and go, we're going to take everything you own and we're going to get your bank account, right? There's some negative motivation, and yet we're very grateful for the infrastructure of America, are we not? I'm happy that this country has asphalt roads and we have all sorts of infrastructure that makes our life delightful. That's what our taxes go to pay for. But still, you hear what I'm saying? There's some, um, there's a negative motivating factor in both of those. If you don't stay within the bounds, there's going to be trouble. Now, there's also things that I think we do um, sort of positively. So whether that's, you know, I'm going to work hard and do well at work so that I get a promotion maybe or I make more, there's some positive motivation. Now, those are both sort of kind of human and carnal, but, but it gives you the idea. Now, let me switch analogies. Let me talk about raising kids for just a second because this whole thing is about, at the end, it ends with turn the hearts of the parents to the children and hearts of the children to the Parents. Okay, so let's talk about kids a second. So uh, in our house, um, we have uh, both ends of the spectrum. In other words, we help our kids with positive motivation, and we help our kids with some negative motivation. So let me tell you about the positive first. We use this thing called a wise choice jar, and I love it. It's this little um, jar. Abby is really good at it at our house, but we have a, jar, a bowl of beads and then this jar, and, and we, uh, the idea is that we actually catch our kids doing something right. So, you know, I think a lot of times we tend to um, find what we're looking for. You know what I'm talking about? And so if we're looking for the negative, what do we find? The negative. You begin to look for the positive, what do you find? The positive. So we try to, at a regular interval after dinner, before bedtime, we try to pause by the wise choice jar and talk about a few of the wise choices they made during the day. So uh, the other thing um, that's funny about our wise choice jar is if our kids uh, try to tell us that they made a wise choice, which always happens, it's immediately disqualified, okay? You can't tell us about one of your wise choices or it's disqualified. We have to actually see you and catch you in a wise choice. So positive motivation, right? Now, let's talk about negative motivation for kids. Um, if they're little kids, uh, what, what we have done with ours um, is a couple of things. Um, we have uh, done hand pops. We have done some spanking on the bottoms. And we've also done what we call the green bowl. The green bowl. And depending on what age they are, we will have the kids actually jot down on little pieces of paper their favorite things. And we throw all of their favorite things in the green bowl. And if they, uh, they aren't um, maybe making great decisions or doing something that we'd like them to do, we have them choose what they will lose. That's exactly right. Choose what they're going to lose. So they'll have to actually make a selection out of that green bowl. And so that, bec that becomes some negative motivation. And what you literally begin to see here from this um, holy God is he is literally providing both positive motivation and negative motivation to keep us sort of in the way. And you begin to see that all through the Old and the New Testament, that, that we as humans, we as sheep, have all gotten lost, we've all gone astray, and we need sort of those external at, at points and also internal sort of motivating uh, factors. So if you're a parent out there or even a grandparent, I think I would have to at least say um, the green bowl has to change as they grow. You know, it has to become like iPhones and cars and, you know, trips and, and whatever. Um, you know, it's something also interesting that Abby and I used to do in that green bowl, which is fascinating. If you're a parent this is real, or a grandparent, this is really good. Because Abby and I, would, uh, we'd, we'd have this something planned, like um, the aquarium and a beach bike ride, let's just say. So we're going to ride bikes at the beach, we're going to the aquarium, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the kids will act up, and lo and behold, we have to lose our big plan. And guess who's disappointed? 
Me, I'm super bummed. I'm like, this is terrible. I wanted to do this. And so Abby and I are like, this is... So here's what we started doing. We started um, uh, planning things that because of the behavior pattern that had been happening the last few days or week, we knew weren't going to happen. So guess who didn't get their hopes up? (laughs) See? I mean, serious. So now, I mean, literally, Abby and I look at each other and we go, okay, we're going to go, just go back to my other example, we're going to do a beach bike ride and go to the aquarium. But we look at each other and go, we know the kids are going to lose this, right? Because of the way they've been acting or are acting or whatever. But we're going to go ahead and set this thing in motion. And sure enough, they did what we thought they would do, which, you know, Malachi is not surprised by the people doing what he thought they would do, nor is God surprised. And then all of a sudden they lose it, but guess who's not disappointed? Yeah. That's a great little, little thing you need in your back pocket, parents, or grandparents. <clears throat> um, so God uses both negative motivation and positive motivation for us as believers to walk with him. So there's a, um, you also begin to see here this sharp contrast between how uh, God treats those that love him and are faithful to him and how he treats those uh, who don't love him or who harden their hearts towards him. So you get this treasured possession versus coming judgment that begins to sort of come up. And, you know, I, I think I'd make an um, overarching comment about the capital C church just, just at, at large right now. Church people um, have a tendency, the longer they're in this thing we call church, to become um, a little uh, judgmental, a little pharisaical, a little, we like to look down our nose at other people because they're doing this or they're doing that or they're, you know, it's, um, and and it's like you you, you have to have uh, the truth of God, but you actually also have to have the grace of God. That's kind of what I'm saying. And how we walk that out as believers becomes vitally important that we don't get lost simply being domineering truth tellers and not being wonderful grace givers, right? It becomes a, it becomes a both and, and that is what what Malachi is, is getting his arms around here. So, you know, and I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't communicate truth. I, I think we should. But it is not our job to step out as believers and judge and condemn and be ugly because the grace of God is constantly drawing people back to repentance again and again and again. So number three, third point uh, here, the fate of um, the ungodly. So the, the fate of those um, who are not in Jesus. It's 4 verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming and will set them on fire. Now, this is really difficult. This is hard even to talk about. I don't like to talk about it. Um, but what this is clearly communicating is there is a larger kingdom reality of eternal darkness, and it's heavy. It is heavy. And I think if we as um, Christians right now in Wilmington, North Carolina, if we fully grasped and digested the reality of eternal darkness, we would probably all the more give everything we have to share Jesus with everyone we know. Because it is such, a, it is, is, is such an overwhelming reality that is coming down the pike. And, you know, it's, it's, um, in some ways there is an awful Um, and terrible and yet wonderful privilege that we bear as humans created in the image of a holy God because our actions and our choices have implications both on planet earth and in eternity. And it's heavy at times, and that's kind of what he's beginning to say here. And I think if there's an important sort of clarification too that I would make, and this is very, very important, um, love 
is freedom to choose. God doesn't, if, if, we, if I played with the semantics of this thing, God doesn't um, condemn or send people to hell. He allows people to reject him and choose it. You see how that's different? It's, it's, it's very different. It's a, it's a loving father who goes, here's the boundary, here's what you're called to, here's how your life will operate most effectively and function best, and if you decide to reject me and color outside of it, then this is the repercussion. But he's not um, out to get certain people. No, 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 he actually desires that none should perish. He desires that none would get lost. He's the God that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. This is his heart. He's this loving, tender, beautiful father. So it, it, it becomes, um, I think the other thing that we'd have to deal with, and it's, 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 again, challenging to even deal with, but there's this um, sort of this idea um, when it comes to um, hell, uh, and I, I would actually think of it, I like the word better, um, e- eternal darkness, but, but either one, it's, it's, it could be used interchangeably. But what 4.1 actually indicates is that people will all be burnt up. Like, you know, when you stand before a holy God, if you're not in Jesus and Jesus isn't in you, you're just going to be annihilated is what it kind of looks like. But if you study all the New Testament passages, John 5, 27 to 30 is, is a good one. Um, but there begins to be this tension between what will hell look like. And I can't tell you exactly. There's a theological tension, even a disagreement in the theological world, because there's some people who go, you're going to be totally annihilated. And there's other people who go, you're going to be eternally separated. Um, and there'll be like eternal sort of discipline and separation from God. Either one is eternal darkness. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be there. I don't want to go there. I'm not interested. I want to walk with my Jesus. I love that you said that this morning. We hear Clive use that too. I want to walk with my Jesus here, and I want to walk with him into eternity. And that's kind of what Malachi is is getting to here. So um, I, I, I think in the 90s, some of you, I'm looking at some of you out there who are children of the 90s, um, but in the 90s, the church, and the church is funny because it leans, it points into more about the grace of God and the love of God, and it points, it leans more into the, the, the truth of God, and there was a point in the 90s where tracks and t-shirts in America were oriented around um, probably the, you know, the truth, and, and there was things like turn or burn, you know, fly or fry, live or die. You know, there was this whole series where it was like almost this uh, kind of uh, silly, um, almost Christianity that just dealt with the judgment of God. And I think that was an attempt to lean back and not just be the grace of God. And so what I think Malachi is attempting to help us see here and what we as believers sort of need to see and grasp is that we have to understand that he is a loving, gracious, gentle father, and he is a father that at some point will return. Jesus will come back and there will be eternal light and eternal darkness and each of us will end up in one place or the other. And Malachi gets all down into it and just goes, this is the way it is. There are people that I know and that you know who literally look at the gospel of Christ Jesus and they pick and choose pieces they want to follow and they throw out the rest, right? There was a guy that you may have heard of named St. Augustine and he actually wrote at one point, he said, if you believe what you like in the gospels, and reject what you don't like. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Yourself. So my first or my fourth point this morning is there's essentially two ways to live, is what Malachi is saying here. You can follow God or you can 
reject God. If you look back over um, the whole Old Testament, and Malachi even does it here in verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Uh, But in Moses' day, there was fundamentally two ways to live, under the blessings of God or under the curse of God, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. In Elijah's day, there's two ways to live, in obedience to God serving him or in obedience to the idols that everyone was worshiping in that day. In Malachi's day, there's two ways to live. You receive God's word through the prophet or you reject God's word through the prophet. In Christ Jesus' day, when he walked on planet earth, two ways to live. You can hear his word and do it, or you can hear his word, harden your heart, not do it. And so today, there is essentially two ways to live. We can follow God, we can embrace him, we can walk with him, or we can reject him. It is relatively simple. The Old Testament actually draws to a close by Malachi, looking back at Moses, looking back at Elijah, but then he does this beautiful about face, and he goes, we're going forward to Jesus. Something better is coming. And one of my favorite parts of this passage is what Malachi does so beautifully here is he, he actually um, he references uh, Moses and the deliverance of the people from the bondage of Egypt and how they journeyed to the promised land because that was the most important event in ancient Israel. I mean, it was, it was, it was the most important because it, it literally um, it, it is the most important redemptive event that, that signified and symbolized what Jesus would do with each of us. So Moses led the people from bondage uh, through a desert experience into the promised land. That was essentially the, the sequence of events. And um, what that so so what Malachi is literally telling the Israelites as he as he penned this is listen to me. There's a God who is coming, and He's going to lead you out of bondage. He's going to lead you through the wilderness, and He's going to lead you into the promised land. And then He goes even bigger than that, and He goes after He comes back, He's going to then leave, and He's going to return again for a day of judgment. And so you get this idea that, that Malachi is sort of tiring, uh, tying the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament together with the Messiah, with the centrality of the cross. And then he goes, and Jesus is going to come back at the end and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And it's like, wow, there's some uh, ancient fear of God that's suddenly recovered. Malachi 4.6 actually ends with a curse. I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What's interesting to me is Revelation 22, the final chapter of the New Testament, ends, uh, verse 3 actually says, the, no longer will there be any curse. So it's fascinating that on both the bookends of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, you have, there's, there, I will come and strike the land with a curse, and then in Revelation literally said it's all been fulfilled, and Jesus is saying there will be no more curse. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live. And I think what I would raise before us today is no matter where we come from, whether you're in your living room or whether you're sitting in here with me, no matter how disappointed and frustrated you are with things, um, with how things are in this moment and currently, 
there is hope. There is hope for where he is taking us. There is hope for what is next. And this King Jesus that came and changed everything and died on a cross and paid the ultimate price for you and for me, he's also returning and he will usher in his final rule and reign and change everything. So the question for us then as believers is, in every area of our lives, are we choosing life? Are we choosing blessing? Are we choosing Jesus? Or are there holdout areas where we're still going our own way and doing our own thing? And as believers, that is the question. And if you're out there today and you're watching and you've never um, come to the point where you go, oh my goodness, I need to give my life, my entirety of my life. I like the word surrender because it's a word picture of someone who is literally laying everything down before King Jesus. And as you share the gospel with people, many times you um, bring them to this point and, and they want to um, sort of pick and choose and go, well, I'll give my life to Jesus if I can, or uh, if I can continue this, or if I can hang on to this. And I go, no, 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 no. God actually requires that if you're going to come to him, you lay it all down. You give it all. And so the question for us as believers today is, is are you choosing life? And I want to look into the camera and um, invite you, if you're tuning in with us, or even if you're in the room, and you've never, am I good? I'm okay. You want me to keep going? <laughs> okay. uh, if, if you're tuning in with us and, and you've never given your life to Jesus, then pray with me. Let's do it like this. I love technology. Um. So if you've come to this point and you've never given your life to Jesus, pray with me. Everybody in the room, let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I would acknowledge at this moment that I've gone my own way and lived my life the way I want to live it. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would come in and you would change me, that you forgive me for my sin. I acknowledge that you are Lord, that you are God. And I ask that you would forgive me, and I ask that you would fill me, and I ask that you would change me. And would you teach me to walk with you this day and every day, all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. For us as believers in the room, if you're here and you would go, there's areas in my life that I haven't fully chosen life, I haven't fully brought into the light, I haven't fully given to Him, I would invite you to do that. Come up for prayer afterwards. And here is the thing as we move forward. God is at work. He is at work in your life and in my life, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in the state of North Carolina, in the country and around the world. The question is, can we be found working alongside him and walking with him? Because good days are coming and our Jesus will return. As you go from this place, go grasping, sensing the love of a God that hears that responds, that knows. Go asking him for greater revelation, both of his uh, loving and of his boundaries. Go asking for greater revelation of that ancient fear of God that many of us have lost. 